Um, one of the things I've noticed um, about Christian culture, I've, I've been a believer uh, since I was 11, so I'm 33 now, and um, 22 years. And one of the things I've noticed is, a, a really, I don't even know if this is, um, has to do with American Christianity or just Christianity in general, but just false imagery on Jesus. And, and, and so if you've been a believer, uh, if you've been in the church for a while, you have probably seen it. Um, first of all, he's not white. Um, I'm sorry to let some of you down, but he's not white. Um, he doesn't have blonde flowing hair. Um, and, and, um, and, and we don't even know if he had long hair. He probably did not have long hair. Um, he, was, he was born in Nazareth, but he did not take a Nazarite vow, which he was allowed to cut his hair, okay? So the, the, that already, probably in most of your mind, I've already kind of taken down misconceptions of probably this picture right here that will show. That picture um, is what you've probably seen growing up, um, very soft um, picture of Jesus where he is a somewhat of a hippie pacifist um, that you could beat up and you wouldn't want to worship. Um, and I've seen this imagery as well of Jesus, this picture here. And I mean, who would want to worship that Jesus, right? That just looks like, you know, I, that just, you know, that freaks me out a little bit. I'll be honest. Um, you also see different pictures of Jesus where I'm um, like this one. I don't even, this was in a Christian. Uh, I'm not joking. This, is, this was a serious picture of Jesus in a little kid's Christian um, coloring book. And it, the, the, in, the inscription is something like, even though we don't know that dinosaurs were around Jesus, but they probably did. And I love the fact that they just assumed that Jesus rode one. And, um, and so that one there. And so there's, there's these other ones. And they just get more and more extreme like this one. Um, where it's the heroin addict and it's Jesus' arm. And I, I like the imagery there because what you see there is the, the picture of, of worldliness and Jesus is in that world. And like somehow he's got a skull. Like all heroin addicts have skulls in their room apparently and nunchucks on the door. Now that's bad right there. That is bad news. He's got cards. And so, you, you know, I don't believe there's, I mean, Christian art, some reason, like, um, we just have bad images of Jesus. And so, I don't know what image you have this morning of Jesus. Um, some of us might have images that are not healthy, and the images that we might have often cause us to worship him differently. And so, what I want to do is to show you that Jesus isn't just this, uh, this soft figure that we often see. Oftentimes, he uses very strong language. Um, I, I don't, I mean, he was a carpenter, so he would probably be over to, to, to handle a fight, all right? Um, and, and what you see is Jesus constantly is, when he speaks into culture, he deconstructs people's worldviews. And, and basically, with his words, he's able to penetrate a person's heart. And so, what I want to do this morning is, I, I, I don't want you to get that picture of Jesus with the, the lamb on his shoulder, and he always shrugs when he leaves the room. And uh, I want to give you this picture of Jesus that he demands our worship. Um, he calls us to repent of our sins and, and believe in the gospel. And so what I want to show you this morning is that Jesus, and I want you to get a healthy picture of who he is. Luke 13 is where we'll be. Look in verse 1. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. 
So what you're, what you're seeing here is, is Jesus is speaking um, to a large crowd. He's talking about really division in the gospel, how if you're a believer in Jesus, then there's going to be a division on how your family lives that out. There's going to be people who hate you. There's going to be people who don't want to have anything to do with you. And so while that's happening, uh, there were some present at that very time, and they began to really bring up this issue, this historical issue um, to Jesus. And we're not really sure exactly um, what this crowd is referencing. Um, But what we do know is um, some writings on Josephus. Josephus is a historian. He's actually a secular historian who tells us, honestly, he tells us a little bit about the life of Jesus. He's not a believer. He's just writing history down. And he tells us um, certain events that happened, some with Jesus, some with church history. And so one of the things that we can kind of gather from this story, plus some uh, other secular writings, what's happening here is he's describing how these Galileans um, who were celebrating the Passover, uh, the Passover is really how God redeemed a certain people out of slavery, and, and what happens is they're celebrating this Passover, and then there's a group of Roman soldiers who come into this group of Galileans, and, and they kill them all, and they mix their blood with um, another, some other blood, and they spill it on the altar. I mean, they're, they're the only equivalent that I could think of that would match up with this would be as if we're in this room together and a group of people come in and kill us all and sprinkle our blood on a cross. And that would be the equivalent of what they're describing, and they're doing this because they want to remind Jesus of, do you know what happens when you are this radical with what you're saying? Do you know where this ends up? That there are going to be people who are going to kill you for what you're saying. And so this is what Jesus does. He takes this idea and he turns it around to disciple this group on um, the kingdom of God. And so here's how he answers them. Verse 2. And he answered them, Do you think that the Galileans were, those, were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way. And so what Jesus is doing, he's attacking this popular view, and I think this is a popular view even now, of if something bad happens to you, that means you're bad. And if something good happens to you, that means you're good. Um, the view that often people would have that Jesus was in contact with throughout the Gospels, you see it in John chapter 9. You see a, a, a man who is blind. And, and what happens, Jesus begins to speak into this world of what this looks like. So what he does in John 9 is he says, uh, I'll just read it, John 9 verse 1. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the understanding that these people had was, this man is blind, so he is a sinner. And their understanding of sinner is not the way that we should understand the sinner, that all are sinners, all are born in sin with the curse of sin in our lives. And we need Jesus because of that. We're slaves to our sin. Uh, Jesus is the only one who can transform that to being a slave to righteousness. And so they didn't have that understanding in that way. They understood sinner as if they saw a prostitute, that was a sinner. If they saw a drunk, that was a sinner. And they would label them and plague them with this idea of sinner. And they would always try to backtrack why are th- bad things happening to you? So if you are blind or if you are born with any type of ailment, they would say, oh, you know what? I bet their family, I bet somebody in their family was a sinner and this is the reason why. 
And so Jesus is attacking this worldview because what you see here in the South is a really similar worldview, is it not? Do we not plague people with that, that label of sinner? We, we put that on them and we, we often in our minds think, there's no way that person deserves the grace of God. I do, but there's no way that they do. And so the gospel should challenge the way that we think about what good and what bad is. And so if you're a person that has what I refer to as karma Christianity, which means you bring in this idea of when I do something good, I deserve something good in return. Came to church today, God ought to give me that promotion. I gave a little bit. God ought to be able to double what I gave. I shared the gospel with someone, so therefore I should be able to marry a hot girl, right? And so we, we press in to these issues because we inherit, in, inherently, we think that we are pretty good people. Do we not? I think we're pretty great. So God, therefore, owes me. He owes me because I'm good. The problem is we're not good. Okay? We're not good. So you say, why do bad things happen to good people? There's no good people. All right? None. Scripture says there's none righteous. No, not one. And so, so for this idea of karma, and by the way, that does no one really believes in karma, all right? Because you would have to turn on the news to believe that. You would have to turn on the news and realize there are bad people that seemingly consistently get away with being bad, right? How would you define Hugh Hefner, right? This guy has frequently put girls on display for men to lust after, and he's like the richest, most confident guy you've ever seen. Like, that dude is never sad, right? He's hanging around all day in his bathrobe on slip and slides with girls who can't read. Like, that's what he does all day long. And you say, well, he seems like a pretty bad guy, but why does things that happen to him are good? Because karma is not true. It's not. How how do you look at situations like a, a, a year ago, uh, we have a, a, a woman in our church who does, she was leading first impressions, loves the Lord with all of her heart, soul, and mind, submitted her life to Jesus. Uh, she's riding in the car with her son, and we never see her again. She dies in a car accident. I mean, what, what do we do with that if we really believe in karma? Do we say, well, her parents must have done something wrong? Do we say, well, she must have done something wrong? No. We just say that. Sometimes God just does things that we don't fully understand and fully grasp, but we know that he's good. So first of all, I think what we have to do is we have to grab the gospel. to understand what the gospel means, and we have to understand what good and bad means. That we're sinners and we're saved by grace because he's good. So what you have in verse 3 is he begins to continually attack this idea in verse 3. He says this, Now I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise so he's contrasting this idea, and this idea is key to where we're going to go for the rest of this. Okay, look in verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Shalom fell and killed them, do you, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Now I tell you, but unless you repent, you will what? You'll perish. Right. Now notice, Jesus is consistently sharing these two ideas, these two really tragic things that have happened. And he's speaking into, first of all, you have the Galileans who were martyred for celebrating the Passover. And second of all, you have this tower that was 
built up where everyday folks went, and it one day collapsed, and it killed 18 people. And it's very interesting that they use even the word tower, because can we think of an analogy like that as Americans, where a tower fell? Yeah, can. Thousands of people die. And so what do we, where do we, what do, we do with that? And so what Jesus does is he contrasts that with repent, and then he says, likewise, repent. That word likewise is very important. And so here's what I don't want to do with this text, because here's what most people do with this text. When they see something like this, here's what they do. They say, see, bad thing happened, and he says, likewise, repent. You know what he's doing? He's setting up this hellfire and brimstone message. You better repent, and we've heard this whole message, haven't we, of There's this church service where this kid comes and he's addicted to whatever and we're sharing the gospel with him and we keep sharing and we keep sharing and he's on the back row and he won't decide and he won't follow through and he leaves and he gets in his car and he dies and he went straight to hell because he rejected the gospel. Let's pray, right? And that's typically what we do with passages like this. We do a hellfire and brimstone and we turn it into a scare tactic to get people to respond, See, towers fall. You better respond quickly. You never know when you're going to die, right? Galilee and slain quickly. You never know when you're going to die. And that's what people do. Let me just unpack this idea so, so that we can continue on the rest of the sermon so you don't think that's where I'm going. Because here's what people typically do. We think that you can, we can scare you into heaven. And here's why that's a problem. Name, first of all, name one relationship that is healthy that you were scared into. Can you name one? If you don't love me, I'll strangle you to death, right? Has that ever happened where that ended up to be a healthy relationship? No. No. That's not how that works. Somebody said, so that happened to me, right? Um, (laughs) It's not a healthy relationship. We'll talk later. All right. so if you have this understanding of Jesus that doesn't go beyond just scare tactics and fear, let me just submit to you, perhaps you don't know the God of the Bible. Because here's the thing about heaven. Heaven was not established for those who were scared of hell. It wasn't. It was established for those who would enter into um, worship and joy for eternity, where they worship the King of kings and Lord of lords without sin, without any distractions, with a clean, pure heart that Jesus has redeemed. That is what heaven is for. It's not for people who just want to get out of hell. It's not. And so the, the relationship has to be beyond scare tactics. And so it doesn't work. And so with, with, with parents, we have to be real careful with this. And so, let me just get on my little soapbox here for just for a second. With parents, we have to get very careful with this. With how we share the gospel with our kids. Because here in the South, it's like this. Do you want to go to heaven with mommy and daddy and Superman and ice cream and streets of gold? Oh, and there's mansions and there's arcades. Or... Do you want to go to hell where there's burning and there's flames and there's gnashing of teeth and there's reminders where you'll never, ever see mommy and daddy again? Let's pray, right? (laughs) Do you want your kids to have a fear, scare tactic Christianity? No, we want them to love Jesus and live for Jesus. Now, is hell real? Absolutely. Are all the things that I just described 
taken, I I took that lightly, but yes, it's taken seriously. And the, the reality of hell is sobering, absolutely. But do we decide on our eternity and our ultimate relationship and desire to pursue Christ above all things based on that idea? Absolutely not. It is a sub point to a very large point that Jesus saves, Jesus redeems, Jesus offers new life, eternal life, abundant life. And so here's what Jesus is doing here. He's describing two different stories basically to show us this, that we don't know how frail our lives really are. And life goes by, as James says, like a vapor, and death can happen at any point, and it sneaks up on us. I mean, should that surprise us that death really sneaks up on us? Should that really surprise us? Like, everything sneaks up on you. And when you're in your 20, you don't think that, but when you're 33, you start to realize that. When my son, who's five years old, and my, I have a little baby now, and he's already... He's articulating sentences. He's saying, like, we are, we're downloading old Nintendo games on the Wii, and we're playing them. Like, and I cannot believe Excite Bike came out in 1984. It just blows my mind. And I'm playing Mike Tyson's Punch-Out with him, and I'm explaining and I can still tell you the code to it, 00737359963, and you can still get there to Mike Tyson with that code. But I'm just blown away because I'm looking at 16-bit graphics, and kids now are just playing, I mean, it's, it's almost real life. And I'm thinking back, that, that felt like yesterday that I was doing that, and now I'm doing that with my own son, and it's just going by so fast. It just blows by, and life just blows by. Death, it will creep up on us. And this is what Jesus is showing us, that you don't have control on your life. I do. I do. So it's not a scare tactic, but it is a sobering fact and he said, listen, based on the idea that I'm the one who's sovereign over all, I'm sovereign over your life and your death and your birth and your new birth, I'm sovereign over all of those things. Based on that, he says, listen, you need to be prepared. You need to be alert. And he narrows this down. Likewise, he says one word, repent. And so our understanding of repent really needs to be Tight and biblical. So let's grab what he says when he says repent. Look in verse 6. And he told this parable. So this is a parable that would explain what repent means. All right? A man had a fig tree planted in the vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for there Three years from now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I have found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And so what he does here is he illustrates... um, in, in a very short parable, Jesus is talking to religious men and women who think that their moral behavior has brought about 
the favor of God and the destruction of others. This is where these people are located. Because Jesus, because he's God, can read their hearts. He knows their hearts. And he's asking these questions because he knows the hearts of the men and women who were there. He's like, listen, these people who died, do you think they died because they're bad? Do you think this person survived because they're good? So he's challenging this idea of your moralism is, as, biblical, as Scripture says, filthy rags. And Jesus is telling them in this parable, you have no fruit. The fruit that you are describing is not the fruit he wants. So he's saying, repent, repent. And we do this. In our own context, we do this in so many ways. Now, it doesn't look quite like this, but it does in the sense of, he's saying, repent of you thinking that your church attendance will earn the favor of God. It won't. He's saying, repent of you thinking that you only listen to Christian radio And you think that will earn the favor of God, it won't. Repent of you only reading Christian books or repent of you tithing and thinking that will earn the favor of God or you fasting and think that will earn the favor of God or your social justice or your giving to the poor or you helping the lady across the street or you serving your neighbor. He's saying repent of your moralism is what he's calling out because it's not the fruit that he wants. Repent of your works because it's not real faith. It's you covering up a bad tree with false fruit. It got real quiet in here. So let me just say this. The fruit that Jesus wants is this. He doesn't He's not concerned about the church attendance, the issue of what we listen to on the radio or what we don't listen to on the radio. Here is what he's after. Jesus is after your worship, your submission, and your yielding your lives to him. And that is what true repentance looks like when we realize that the tree that we are trying to produce, we're trying to produce on our own work and we cannot grow it. So it ends up not producing real fruit. So it ends up not being real. And Jesus says, if it's not, cut it down. Get rid of the junk that we are constantly trying to trump what Jesus' finished work was on the cross. And that is what we constantly do. And so we, here's, here's two sides, I think, to grasping legalism. One is realizing what repentance looks like. It's not about the exterior, but it's about the heart. By the way, when God changes your heart, you will serve others. When God changes your heart, you will be careful of what you listen to and what you watch. Uh, when God changes your heart, uh, you will want to do these things where you serve and you love and you, you care for your city. You will, and it's a response to the heart change of the gospel. But don't do it to earn the favor of God because that is not the gospel. That is anti-gospel. 
That is works-based religion, and that is not the gospel. The gospel is God changes you from the inside out, and from that you will serve, and you will do community, and you will do life, and you will be at church. So your church attendance isn't based on, I hope God blesses me later this week. Your church attendance is, I love Jesus because Jesus has redeemed me. Jesus has changed me from the inside out. And I want to be around other believers in Jesus because they're going to encourage me to continue to pursue the gospel. And I love him for it. And so what I do when people don't want to go to church, I go to back to the gospel. I don't go to religiosity and say, listen, you have to be at church because God's going to bless you later if you do it. You have to give because God's going to bless you later if you do it. Here's what I do with conversations like this. Somebody comes to me and says, man, my giving is not where it needs to be. Man, my church attendance is not where, I want, where, where it needs to be. Here's what I do with that. I say, do you know the gospel? Do you know the gospel? Because the gospel, when it changes you, you would want to be around other believers. That's what the gospel does. Uh, If the gospel that transforms your heart, you would want to give generously and graciously and joyfully. This is what the gospel does. And so let's let's not mix that up. Let's not mix that up. And so the other thing, I think, realizing what repentance looks like, it's all realizing that... um, Realizing what repentance looks like, it's not about the exterior, but also, second, repentance looks like holiness, where you want to obey him. That is what repentance looks like, where you turn away from who you are, your works, your filthy rags, and you run hard after Jesus and his word. Verse 7 says this, and he said, to the vine dresser, look, three years from now I've come seeking fruit on the fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? So what does stagnant faith really look like? What, is, what if your life is just based on moral observances just that I described? What if you don't grow in your worship or your joy and you stay in your sin and you hide it with things that you think will cover it which are just moral practices so that you can earn the favor of God. And Jesus is saying this is not real. It's fake. And he says, cut it down and I'll plant a new one. And Jesus is, is both char- characters in this parable. I don't know if you picked up on that. But he's both the one who grows the tree, but he's also the vine dresser who, who says, sir, it's what he says in verse 8. He says, answer him, sir, let alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure, which is to let it grow. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So on one hand, you have this frustration of the one who's growing it and saying, listen, this isn't real. This is fake. This is false. This is faulty. This is not genuine. Cut it down and I'll grow it. But there's also, on the other hand, Jesus is showing the patience of God. Give it more time, let it grow, let it grow. But if it's not, if it doesn't grow, it's not real. It's not real. Cut it down. And so, yeah, God is patient with us, but his patience also has limits. Because what God is after is our worship and our submission. And if our worship and our submission is not there, then repentance is not there. If repentance is not there, then belief is not there. And if belief is not there, you don't know the God of the Bible You're just practicing religion. 
And the very thing, next thing you ha- see happen here in the text is you see exactly this paradox that Jesus is describing that will play itself out. Look in verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had been disabled for 18 years. And, and she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Can you imagine the pain that this woman went through for, year, for, for 18 years? When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Now we've seen this scenario before in Luke where Jesus just heals people. This is a different type of healing in the sense of most people were running to Jesus to be healed. They were just trying to touch his garments um, to be healed. Um, but, but he actually goes to this woman, and I think he does it to prove a point. And here's the point that he makes in verse 14. He says, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, indignant uh, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not, listen to this, not the Sabbath day. So what is this guy interested in? The, the woman's heart or a moral observance? He's interested in a moral observance. He cares more about this practice than he does a woman's soul. Can you see that problem break down? Look at what happens next, verse 15. Then, G, then the Lord answered him, and I love this response. The Lord answered him, and this is not that pacifist hippie that we saw, okay? You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and let it away to water it? And ought not this woman, the daughter of Abraham, who Satan had bound for 18 years, be loose from, from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said, these things all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at, at, at all the time, glor, uh, glorious things that were done by him. Now, what Jesus is saying is this. You don't care about this woman's soul. You care, listen, even your Sabbath rules allows an animal to be set free. And now I've set a person free. And you're bothered by that. You care more about creation than this woman's soul. I think one little thing I want to put in there is I think he's talking about people that are just extreme dog lovers. Can I just say that? <laughs> like people that put sweaters on their dogs, okay? Um, people that maybe change their vacation plans based on the dog and his diet. That is wrong, all right? I'm just going to say it. It's wrong. Don't kiss your dog on the mouth, okay? That's too far, too far. I mean, I was with my little baby. I had him in the basket um, in, in his uh, car seat, and then we had a cover over him. It was, it was December, and because it was cold, we had the little cover over it, and someone came up and said, oh, what's under there, a puppy? I'm like, no, a baby, a human being, all right, a human being. God has given me dominion over a puppy, all right? But this is a human being who has a soul who can repent and believe the gospel one day, and I'm praying that that will happen, okay? 
But what happens is when we begin to lose focus on humanity and really the heart and soul of man, I mean, honestly, the people that love their dogs that way are often the rudest people to human beings in the world, right? They're like in a restaurant, and they're like, oh, and the waiter comes up, and they're like, I just have a Coke, just get out of here. They just want them out of their face, right? And so I think that's what happens when we lose focus. Did I, did I make somebody mad in here? Um, that's good. I, I hope so. But, but that's what happens. And that, that, that probably did not have a ton to do with I just wanted to say it. Um, but this is what happens. This is what legalism does to our lives. It, it, it turns us into where we believe that this moral observance everyone needs to abide in. And we stop looking at the soul of man. And we stop caring for the things that really matter, this woman being set free. And so it makes us pompous and arrogant and judgmental when we build our lives based on these things. And Jesus is saying, it's not real. It's not real. Look in verse 18. And he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? So he uses this scenario. And this is why I think Jesus went after this girl to, to describe this point just so he can explain this parable to these people. He says, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in the garden, and it grew and it became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God like? It's like a leaven that a woman took and hid in, there in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. And so what he does with the first analogy in this one big parable is he's describing a mustard seed. A mustard seed is a tiny little seed that is planted and it causes a tree to bloom that would somewhat be around 12 feet tall. And this seed, he said, even its branches spread out so that birds would perch and they would one day build a home and they would live there. And this is what he's telling to a group of people that would one day take the gospel to the nations. And he's saying, listen, I'm using you who's a sinner who cannot produce fruit on your own and I could I could take out the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. And that new heart in Jesus will expand and reproduce into gospel impact that will transform the world. And this is what he's beginning to show his disciples, this small little handful of people. So he's saying, you can't even build a fig tree on your own. But this is what I can do with the gospel. I can produce, I can grow. And then he also turns and he talks about this analogy of leaven. Both are growing analogies. I love the fact that he even mentions that uh, in the analogy to, the, um, uh, to the, with the mustard seed, what you have is he's talking about a man who grows it. But here he talks about a woman who uh, starts with the leaven. And the leaven grows something small from something small and futile to something that would spread. And he's talking about the advancement of the kingdom of God and this is what the kingdom of God is like. And so in verse 6 through 9 you have a fig tree that won't grow because it's based on man's feeble attempt to see fruit. But you see in verses 18 through 21 you have a mustard seed and a leaven that explodes. And it's God who grows it. 
But when does he grow us? I think it's when we stop getting in the way. And we stop thinking that our moral behavior is going to earn his favor. And what Paul is, what you see Jesus begin to do is things that Paul talks about later. And what you see in the Gospels throughout is this idea of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. God wants your heart, not your moral observances. Mark 1, 14 through 15, it says this. Now after Jesus was arrested, Jesus came down into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What does he say next? Repent and believe in the gospel. Luke 24, 46 through 47 says, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead. This is what we just celebrated last week. He says this, based on this idea that Jesus Christ suffered the pain that we should have suffered and he died in our place and he rose from the grave, this is what comes next. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Even in the early church, Paul says this in Acts 20, 21. He says this to the Ephesian elders who are growing this church, who's blowing up, and this is what he says, testing, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So if our picture of Jesus is based on our moral behavior, then we just have the pacifist We just have the humanitarian. But if we have a biblical view of Jesus, we have the Jesus who is strong, who chases our hearts, and he adopts us based on the language of Scripture. The elect of God, he adopts us, and he calls us his children, sinners, his children. And he replaces this sinful heart, the one that only knows how to do good works and moral observances and we try to make a stink not stink based on good things that we try to do. He takes that all out and he cuts it down and he puts in our lives a new heart which will produce fruit and that is the gospel. And so this morning what I want to show you is that if your life is based on the moral efforts, here's where that ends up. He's always mad at you. God is always angry at you if you're building your life based on moralism because you never can do enough. And then when you do good, you respect rewards, and when you get rewards, you always think that you did something good. And so where does that lead? Pride and arrogance. You become judgmental. You look down on other people. Is that the gospel? Is that why Jesus died for our sins? Absolutely not. Jesus didn't die because he thought that you were a good choice. He died because you needed a savior. He died because you were dead. And so, your works are his. He saved you and redeemed you. And even what Ephesians says, that your good works were prepared beforehand. 
Say, when he redeems you, he changed you. You will do good works because he's changed you. If your picture of Jesus is, man, I'm just going to, he's just going to be my savior. He's going to get me to heaven. I was scared out of it anyway. I don't want to go to hell. And it's not based on any real relationship. Let me just submit to you that maybe you don't know who he really is. Because the Jesus of the Bible is not just your savior. He's also your Lord. And when he's your Lord, he takes over your life and he controls your life and he dictates your life. And so your plans don't matter. His plans do. And so you submit to the God of the Bible and you live according to scripture because his word is true in your life and you want to live that out passionately. And so this morning what I want to show you is just this picture of what repentance looks like because repentance is realizing that what we have in and of ourselves is not enough and we need a savior and we need to constantly remind ourselves of the gospel show us man I don't have what it takes Jesus who died in my place and when he died on the cross he said it's finished so I don't have to continue to work for the favor of God because the favor of God has been removed because Jesus is in my place so I want you all to see that this morning. If you're a believer in here, I want you to continue to remind yourself that your works are not what brings satisfaction to God, but your faith will produce good works because of Jesus changing your heart. If you're not a believer here this morning, if you're trying to gain his favor based on your moral effort, you'll never do it. It only comes from repentance and faith in Jesus. I can't make you have faith in Jesus. Faith is a gift from God. So you need to cry out, God, would you give me faith to believe who you really are and would you save me? This is the prayer we need to have this morning for believers to be encouraged in the gospel, for unbelievers to be challenged by the gospel this morning. Let's pray.